You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. During the opening of our show today, I'm going to continue to offer a few ideas from Larry Bossidy's book, Execution, the Discipline of Getting Things Done. So we've established that execution is the biggest job of the organization, and it needs to belong to the leader, and to a degree, shared with the leader's delegates. And we've all heard of servant leadership. Robert Greenleaf coined the term in 1970, defining it as the philosophy and set of practices that enriches the lives of individuals, builds better organizations, and ultimately creates a more just and caring world. Does that sound familiar? But being a servant leader or steward of the organization means that a leader must be open to feedback. A few weeks ago on our episode with Bishop Barris, we learned how he completely opened himself up to Larry Bossidy's feedback. The humility of a bishop to seek a seasoned business professional's advice requires an uncommon strength of character on his part that we don't often see in leadership, either in a church setting or in a commercial setting. Bishop Barris was not only looking to hold up a mirror to himself, but more importantly, to his whole diocese, so that a faithful Catholic businessman could help him see issues and confront them. How much different would the climate of our church be today if more leaders in our church would be willing to receive that kind of feedback? So my question for you today is whether you're a pastor, school leader, executive director, or whatever you do, who is your Larry Bossidy? Do you have that sounding board, that trusted advisor, that one person who will tell you the truth and hold up a mirror, even when it's uncomfortable? And if not, how are you going to find them? Now, let's get to work. A few weeks ago, I was invited by the Diocese of Green Bay to speak with their schools on developing an annual fund. I conducted a one-hour workshop on the basics and then a second hour on some more advanced tactics for Catholic schools. Today, we're going to play for you just the presentation on the basics. It's entitled, Telling Your Story in the Annual Fund. So I'll put a link up on the show notes and on our website with the PowerPoint presentation. And in the coming weeks, we'll do part two with more advanced tactics. And so, without further ado, here is the presentation. Has anyone ever heard of something called oxytocin? Oxytocin is also known as the love drug. A gentleman by the name of Paul Zak, about 15 years ago, discovered that a neurochemical called oxytocin, which causes feelings of empathy in the brain. That could be very useful as a fundraiser, don't you think? He ran a number of tests on subjects to see if he could hack the oxytocin puzzle. Can you, cause you, can you cause oxytocin to be released in somebody's brain? So he took a blood draw from somebody before he read a narrative and then after he read a narrative. So it was a narrative that caused feelings of emotion and love. It was a beautiful narrative. And he realized that when people read a narrative that caused emotion, then they became actually more generous, which is so interesting. So we're going to be selling some oxytocin at the end of today's set. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So today's session is about telling our story. And it's actually a chemical reaction in the brain, which is so interesting because at the basis of all of us, we're we're creatures, right? And there are chemical reactions that happen. Our brains actually react to a good story. Our bodies react to that. And so we become more generous. So why do we want to tell stories? Telling stories are memorable, right? If If you can think of a good story you've heard, 
right? It stays with us. They create an emotional response. We know that giving, it's not a logical thing. People give to things not because it's the logical thing to do. Sometimes they do. But most, most times that decision begins with an emotional response to something, something that is important to them in their life. And three, people give not to institutions. They give to people. They give to the students in your schools. That's the number one reason why people give. So how we feature those students, how we tell their stories is just so critical. So we all in this room, all of us, whether we're a principal or an advancement director, we all have to be storytellers. And so in each of your schools, there's probably 10 stories, 20 stories, maybe 100 stories that you could tell, depending on how long you've been there, about people who have been touched by your institution, about students who, without the generosity of a donor, otherwise they wouldn't be there. Or a student that was transformed because they were in your school, connected to a Catholic community, a supportive community, that they might not have gotten in a different kind of school environment. Your job as an advancement director or a principal is to tell that story and help define what is commonly known as your value proposition. So I want you to think about what your story is. So how many folks in the room have developed an annual fund right now? Just You have an annual fund. How many people are looking to start their first annual fund? Good. Excellent. So all of you, whether you're experienced or you're just getting started, all of you have a story to tell. So I want you to think about one student who could not have attended your school without the generosity or financial aid of donors or received additional help because of a dedicated teacher, right? One thing that our Catholic schools do so well is to give additional help. We, we find dedicated faculty, not because they're in it for the money, right? But because they're in it for the mission. Think of one student who used a resource that was made possible by a donor. Maybe, maybe you had a donor who donated iPads or donated a reading program, right? Think, think of that one student for just a moment. Now think of one person or a group of persons who donated something meaningful to your school. Might have been the parent-teacher association, or it might have been one generous donor who wrote you a nice check. Maybe they created a scholarship opportunity for a family, or provided leadership for an initiative. Maybe they led uh, a gala, or they led a fundraising initiative that brought in a walkathon, or brought in, I, mean, I know you all have parents who work very hard for your schools, but you probably also have donors or friends in the community who led something. Maybe you have a, an advisory board of parents and folks in the community. So I just want you to take a minute, and I want you just to kind of tell your story. Anybody want to share their story with the group? Uh, good morning. My name is Bob Beeble, VP for Advancement at Xavier Catholic Schools. So I, the story that I shared was kind of a little different from some of the things that we had mentioned here, but we talked a little bit about one of our big pushes for our annual fund is engaging alumni. We had an alum who donated somebody who one of their classmates had passed away. They started having conversations. And so this year we actually purchased a chalice in honor of all our alumni who have passed away. And I think really what the message that we want to do is at every Mass, we use that chalice to honor those who have come before us. And that our alumni are really a part of the success of our current students as well as our future students. And we are one community. We talk about being in the presence of God. Well, our alumni are in the presence of us at all times, at all our masses. So I think that's a, it's a nice touch and I think uh, something that our alumni really appreciate, especially those families of those who have passed. Thank you, Bob. Let's give Bob a hand. That was a great story. Wow.
Anybody else have a story they'd like to share? All right. My name is Karen Bame. I'm the Advancement Director with Lourdes Academy. So we have a gentleman, Bob knows as well, um, Harold. Harold, like I said, just turned 102. Harold never went to school beyond the eighth grade. Just, you know, at that time had to go work on the family farm. And he always placed a great value on education. And so in 2001, he and his wife set up a scholarship fund. And it was Harold's dream to see this fund hit a million dollars. And so he's been adding to it for almost 20 years. And he just was really passionate about making sure that any student who wanted a Catholic education would be able to do that, even if they didn't have the financial means to do it. So earlier in July, he made a donation to the fund, and he hit his million-dollar mark (laughs) just two weeks before his 102nd birthday. So we did a big Thanks a Million campaign for Harold and had him on Facebook and all this stuff. So, But he's just an amazing guy and sharp as a tack, and we were just excited he could see that in his lifetime. Wonderful. Now, I know we could probably... Do we have one more story anybody want to tell over here? I'm Barbara Strawn. I'm the business manager at Roncalli High School in Manitowoc. One of the experiences that has stuck with me for probably about 10 years now was when a young woman spoke at her graduation. And she came to Roncalli, not as a freshman, but I think maybe as a sophomore. And she had been in public school up to that point. Her graduation speech, she talked about that her life before coming to Roncalli was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. She was doing well in school. She had friends. But when she came to Roncalli, she felt like Dorothy going to Oz and realized that her life had been black and white. And the opportunities, the spirituality, the friendships that opened up to her when she came to a Catholic school was like things going into Technicolor. And it was just such a beautiful image that she used to describe that experience. Thank you, Barbara. So we could probably go around this room and spend hours and hours just talking about all the amazing stories. But I wanted you just to think a little bit about how you're telling your story and the audience that you're telling your story to, because that is is so meaningful for them. It really personalizes that approach. And now we're not just, we're not asking them for a dollar figure. We're asking them to be a part of our mission. We're asking them to help continue the story, because we know that there are more students who are going to come to your school. We're going to need the financial support. There are more resources that are going to be needed to remain a cutting-edge Catholic school in your area so that you can service those needs. So, great job. So, what we're going to do is we're going to start with the basics of the annual fund, and then we're going to talk about maybe some more advanced tactics, because I recognize that there are folks who are probably all over the place in the room of just getting started to having done this for many years, and maybe some of you have been doing the same annual fund for a while, and you're looking for some ways to invigorate your annual fund and try something different. I ran the annual, the Bishop's Annual Appeal in the Diocese of Allentown for about eight and a half years, about nine appeals altogether. And over time, we increased our average gift, and we struggled to maintain the, the number of donors. Donors, as you know, are a disappearing resource that you have to cultivate and connect with. But what I tried to do, what I did every year, was I just tried something a little different. So as you look at the ideas and you hear the things that are presented today, try not to get overwhelmed take everything home and digest it. But then when you come out of this, maybe there are one, two, or even three things that you could try in the fall. They're just a little different, right? Maybe you're not personalizing your letters just yet. That's okay. Maybe you're sending out a dear friend's letter. Maybe this is the year that you start to do the mail merge and personalize it. Maybe you're not 
asking your donors for a specific amount of money. Maybe you're just asking them to be generous. Maybe this is the year that you start to ask for a specific amount of money. Maybe you uh, don't have a major gift program, and I know major gift program can sound daunting and huge, but maybe your major gift program simply starts with, I'm gonna do five visits in the fall with my top donors. I'm gonna find out how they feel about the school and just get some data. So just take incremental steps. When I was in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, we had a wonderful chairman uh, who initiated that whole contract and, and got our, our schools together under Faith in the Future. And he had a wonderful way of looking at how we would just make incremental progress just by continuing to, to dial up our efforts every year. And, and that's the way we, we're going to grow and survive by trying things a little differently. So let's start with some of the basics of the annual fund. As you look at your annual fund, one of the cases that you have to bring to your donors is there is the cost of education. So let's say that your cost of education is $10,000 a student versus the parish subsidy or other sources that you receive from tuition uh, that may only be, let's say, it's $8,000 a student or $9,000. So there's always, there's usually a gap that the annual fund is trying to fill. Do you know what your gap is? Right? You all have, I'm sure, some kind of a gap that you're trying to fill with your annual fundraising dollars. That's what point number two makes, <laughs> bridging the gap between operation and your budget. I'm, I'm sure you, some of you have been in the situation where we had a finance council meeting last night, and uh, we decided you're going to need to double your annual fund next year. It's okay. We'll just throw it on the shoulders of our development office. They'll make up the difference somehow, right? And when we talk about annual giving, just so we're talking the same language, we're talking about all donations that can typically be used in the same fiscal year, right, to cover our annual costs. Sometimes you're raising funds this year that will cover next year's budget, but oftentimes it is in the same fiscal year. An annual fund also is the cornerstone of a development operation. You all probably at some point have aspirations, if you haven't already, to think about a campaign at some point, maybe to renovate a room or address an issue with your roof or, or put, you know, whatever it is, put iPads in the classroom or, you know, Chromebooks or whatever. It lays the foundation because what you want to do with an annual fund is get your donors in the habit of giving annually. I've worked with organizations that had great aspirations that they wanted to do a major campaign, but they didn't have just that simple mechanism to getting people in the habit of just writing an annual check, right? We want people to consider you in their top philanthropic priorities. So that's what an annual fund does. It identifies donors who have capacity. It identifies donors who may, you may have donors who have been giving every year. They may only be giving you $25 a year, but they may have been doing that for the last 20 years. That means you're a priority. You need to go talk with that person. Maybe there's a life insurance. They may not have tons of money that we were talking the other day. They may have a life insurance policy that their kids are set, they're fine. Maybe they want to leave something to the school in their estate plans. Some people make their greatest gift. They won't make that greatest gift in their annual fund, but they may make their greatest gift to you after they leave this world and go home to Jesus. An annual fund is typically unrestricted funds. I know there are annual funds who may be structured a little differently, but typically it's that unrestricted gift that we can use for the mission of the school. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't give examples of what the annual fund might cover, like tuition assistance, like helping us increase technology, because we also want to know what sticks with our donors. Do you know why your donors give to your school? What are their favorite things to give to? Do they like technology? Are they excited about scholarships? 
Some of your donors may want to put their name on a building eventually. It'd be good to know that. Maybe they've done that in other places and would consider doing that for you if they were given the right opportunity. So knowing your donor base is really critical. And then annual fund, of course, just like everything else, it needs to have a plan, it needs to have a budget, and it needs to have a fundraising goal, right? So when we, when we sit down with the head of school, if I'm the advancement director, I need to have my 12-month annual fund plan kind of mapped out. That doesn't mean we won't you know, adjust it and pivot a little bit along the way, but we should have a, f a plan for the entire year. We should have a budget for the mailings and things that are, that are going to be a part of that. Or if I'm going to do any little bit of major gift work, right? And then it needs to have a goal because we need to set a bar for our donors that they're going to try to achieve with us. So those three things, if I'm the head of a school, I, I'm going to feel real confident if my advancement director is, is presenting those three things to me with this year's annual fund, a plan, a budget, and then a fundraising goal. So one of the things that I was always a bit pet, a pet peeve of mine is making sure that that first annual fund mailing gets out early in the fall. I had schools that I was working with that unfortunately would push it all the way up to Thanksgiving. They didn't get their first letter out. And I know it's like you, you get overwhelmed. You've got your galas. You've got your annual report. There's so many things you're trying to get done. But don't forget one of the most important things. Let's start asking for money right away. Now, I had a pastor actually from this diocese who said, I love to ask for money in the fall because everybody comes back refreshed. You know, they're relaxed. Don't ask for money in May or June because they, they're ready to leave for the summer, right? We're, we're stressed that time of year. But in September, we're all ready for a new year, a new adventure. So it's a great time to kick off your annual fund. And typically in the first mailing, you're mailing to everybody, people that have been previous donors, but also people who have not given to you in the past. If you, if you can get that first annual fund mailing out in September, early October at the latest, then you're set up to do your second mailing. And usually the second mailing is to your previous donors. And that's maybe November-ish time where you're following up. I say this in the campaign office uh, all the time. There's more than one way to skin a cat. So you may have a slightly different scenario, but I'm just offering you, you know, my little formula here. At Christmas time, Christmas is, there's a lot of reasons why you should be asking during Christmas. For many donors, it's year-end, so they need to get in all their donations for tax reasons. Christmas, uh, December, is usually the month of the year where people give the most. So because it is the season of giving, because it, it lines up with the tax year, and it's just a time, you know, certainly as Catholic institutions, it's a time of great celebration for us in the season of Advent and the season of Christmas. So it's just a natural time for us to be reminding people to give to our organization. And certainly Giving Tuesday, has anybody tried to be a part of Giving Tuesday or do anything like that? So Giving Tuesday is typically the day after Black Friday, right? <laughs> And so, Cyber Monday, thank you. And that's an opportunity. So with Giving Tuesday, there's a lot of traffic you'll see uh, on social media and on email and such. It's not a bad idea to be out there, too. What some of our schools did in Philadelphia is they kind of came up with their own giving day that was centralized to their school. So maybe it's the anniversary of their founding. So they might call it Founders Day, right? But there's a lot of energy. We could spend a whole workshop just getting ready for a, a day of giving. It's, it's not a bad thing to have some things out there as well to, uh, to capture some donors on Giving Tuesday. Typically in March, we might do a third mailing, like a spring appeal, once you get past the holiday rush and everybody's paid off their Christmas bills. Sometimes that goes to the whole donor base. Sometimes that goes to just those who have previously given. 
And then in May, June time period, you're coming up on the end of your fiscal year. At that point, you might be doing a phone-a-thon, a, a follow-up mailing. There's a lot of activities. This is, these are just some of the basic high points of the year for an annual fund. So these are the three areas I want to review with you a little bit on some of the basics. We have database. We'll talk a little bit about personalizing our mailings. And then a little bit about gifts and acknowledgments. If you haven't created an annual fund, or if you have and you haven't really thought about, maybe you want to do a little bit of an inventory, how am I capturing data? First of all, who am I soliciting? Who's my data? Who's my donor base? Obviously, there's a number of different sources. You have alumni. That's an obvious one. If you're in elementary school, you still have alumni. They may be a little bit harder to find, but they're out there, and we should always be looking for them. Current parents. Now, I know some that there's different mixed feelings on this. Well, current parents, they're already paying you know, tuition, and they do this and they do that. Listen, I, I have three kids that went through Catholic school, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm just like many of you, my Catholic school was asking me for a donation probably every other week or every other month. Have you ever thought about just combining all those asks into the annual fund rather than nickel and diming them throughout the year? Think about how you treat your current parents. Because with special events, they cost money. Not, not just the money to put together the special event, but the staff time that goes into special events. How many special events are you doing in, in a given year? It's time to maybe do a little bit of an inventory on that. But current parents, some of them are paying your tuition, and for them, some of them, it may be a real bargain. They may be able to help you make up that gap. Former parents who have a great experience with your school, are you reaching out to them? Are you cultivating them? Have you invited them back? As a parent of three kids who went through a Catholic elementary and middle school, we had a great experience. We had a wonderful community. We made friends that we're still in contact with today. That became kind of the center of our social life, th those folks that we're still in contact with. Have you ever thought of gathering those folks together? you know, and bringing them back on some kind of a reunion weekend or honoring them in some way at a gala, bringing somebody back who was a great volunteer, but their kids moved on and, and now they're gone. Have you thought about honoring them or featuring them in some way? Former parents can be a great opportunity. Those of you who are uh, elementary schools and are connected with parishes, certainly parishioners. There are families in, in your parish who have sent their kids to Catholic education. Maybe they didn't send them to your school, but they still may be committed to Catholic education and would love to be a part of an advisory board or would love to be a part of your school's mission in some way. Come and, and read a story to the uh, pre-K kids in, in the morning. Certainly you all have local businesses and vendors that you may hit up for a sponsorship or other opportunities. Um, and then just friends or people out in the community who want to support your school. So you, those are just some of the data sources where you're building your annual fund database. I would highly recommend that you have some kind of a data management tool. It's worth the investment to get the reports, to build donor profiles. Um, it's certainly, the, these are just some examples. Sorry, I get no kickback for recommending these. <laughs> so, you know, but these are just some of the ones that I know that my, the schools that I've worked with have had some success with. Probably Donor Perfect being one of the more popular ones, obviously, but Razor's Edge. Wow, if you're on Razor's Edge, that's wonderful. Um, I don't know too many schools or too many organizations that are using it to its fullest potential because it's such a, a complex program. But I rec would recommend continuous training, continuous improvement uh, if you're going to be using that. So some database best practices. These are, this is by no means an exhaustive list but limit the number of users who can edit and change things in the database because the ones that are in there, it's so critical. We had, in Philadelphia, we had a centralized database. So all of our schools were on the same database and they were in silos, right? So if you log in as 
Roncalli High School, you could only see the Roncalli High School donors. But we had a centralized network where we had a master database person who could help us provide resources to all the schools. So 17 schools in one database. It was probably the biggest Catholic high school alumni database in the country. Um, but what we were able to do in that scenario is kind of standardize the training and standardize the, the, uh, the way in which data was put in. One of the challenges we found with 17 different high schools was that not, no two database people really manage it the same way, even though they may have used the same database. They called the fields different things. They may have managed their appeals in different ways. So what happens over the course of 20 years, you build up all these little inconsistencies. So it's really important, I can't emphasize strongly enough, that there be cross-training within your office and training, because we all know Everything in development is driven by good, good data. You get good data in, you get good data out. So uh, investing some time in the right person to get the right training, to use the right software, can really, uh, you, you'll see a difference, I think, within a year if, if you make that kind of an investment. But I only say limit the number of users because you want, there, there could be your CEO or your president or your principal of the school. Yeah, they can have a dashboard. They don't necessarily need to be in there making changes, but you can certainly give them access and they can, they can get what they need. Maintaining confidentiality certainly is, is critical, especially in today's world. So uh, having some kind of policy on who has access, they use experience situations where uh, a, a person who had the best of intentions you know, went home with an Excel database with a spreadsheet just so they could do some work at home because they wanted to try to get their work done. We certainly don't want donor databases to leave the office. So just those kind of policies are really important uh, or limiting the access of, of, a, of a user accessing your database on their home computer because you don't know the firewall or the software or the protection that might be in place. So just understanding those security pieces are really important. Obviously, continuously looking for opportunities to update your data. One of the things that is so critical is asking for address updates. Anybody do that annually or every other year? Send out a notice to all your alumni, all your parents. Hey, could you just take five minutes and update our database? If you go to our link, you can send us, you can just go on our website and update your, your address. Always do it looking for ways to update your data. That is like a never-ending job. Or running your database through the NCOA. Anybody do that? National Change of Address Service, right? Throw it up against the post office, see what sticks, see what comes back, avoiding all that return mail. People move all the time. We talked a little bit about security, you know, cross-checking your data, having at least two people in the office who might access the data. If you have a volunteer or you have a part-timer who may be not as experienced as the full-time folks, just cross-checking the things that are put in, making sure there's accuracy, that instead of putting in Tom, we're putting in Thomas. So however you're formally putting in names in the fields, you want to have that kind of uniformity. You, know, you want to be able to say Mr. and Mrs. James' friend if I want to be referred to as James instead of Jim. You know, just those kinds of things they look impressive, right? You can tell when somebody has spent time scrubbing their data when you get that personalized letter. That takes a lot of time and effort, but it really does pay dividends. And so you need to create a high standard for yourself. You want to have the best possible data, and that just takes some time and investment. So if you're fortunate to have a part-timer or a full-timer who's your database person, great. If you're sharing a resource in an office with an administrative assistant who also provides this kind of functionality, you just might want to do a little bit of a check with them before you move into your next annual fund cycle. How much time do they have to really update that database? When's the last time we did an NCOA? When's the last time we asked our donors to update us in the system? A little cross-check once a year is really helpful.
So personalized mailings. This is a big, big pet peeve of mine. If you send me a letter that says, dear friend, I'm going to throw it away because you don't know who I am. It's completely meaningless. If you send me a letter that has the wrong name, <laughs> like my daughter's name is Brianna J. Friend, and somebody keeps sending her emails that say Brianna B., Brianna B., like, that's just, it's just a, it's wrong in the database, and it keeps coming out in every letter that she gets from these colleges. So that's annoying, isn't it, when somebody gets your name? Because our names are our identity. Our names matter to us. So when somebody gets our name wrong, and if, if you get my name wrong, and then you ask me for money, oh, well, you've already started out with one strike against you. So the first part we talked about, the data, obviously informs the second part that we'll talk about here. Personalize your letters. I'm not going to ask who personalizes their letters. Personalize your letters. Said address, salutation, dear Jim and Kristen. You can send me a letter. <laughs> Learn how to do a mail merge. Mail merge is so critical to being a development professional. It's something you can learn online. There are tutorials for that, how to merge Word and Excel files together. Razor's Edge, I think, has a way to do that for you. A mail merge is so critical. You know, we tell our young development professionals at our home office in New York, if you're going to provide admin support for a campaign, one of the first things you need to learn is how to do a mail merge. So central to the work we do in development. Make the ask. So I've been in receptions and I've been in gatherings where we gave a great presentation, but we forgot to ask for the donation, right? Oh, everybody feels so good, but we forgot to ask for the order. So in your annual fund letter, make sure you're making an ask. And when you make the ask, I'm a big advocate for asking for a specific amount. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but I'll just give you a quick overview. If you have been giving my organization $100 every year for the last couple of years or, or longer, I'll ask you to think about, would you consider $125 next year? Would you consider $125 or maybe $150? And you just slowly inch them up. So in the Diocese of Allentown, by doing that over the course of eight years, we doubled the average gift. Every year we ask them for a specific amount, and they continue to today. We started out, the average gift was 100 bucks, and eight years later it was over $200. Now that was combined with a little bit of a major gift effort, but every year there are people, if I put that number on that letter, they would either hit it or sometimes exceed it. Now the first time you do it, if you've never done it before, you might get a, a person who might call you, and I, I know you guys do this in the Catholic Foundation every year, you ask for a specific amount. You might get a letter say, why, why are you asking me for this amount? Or I can't possibly do this. But if you take the time to ask them for an amount that is relative to what they have given to you before, I guarantee 99 times out of 100, they're going to look at that and say, okay, well, yeah, I gave 100 bucks in the past, 125, I can, I can do 125. And if they can't, maybe you can offer them the opportunity to spread it out over payments. Maybe they could do it monthly. Maybe they could become a reoccurring donor. Maybe they could do it, maybe they just need a little pledge reminder. Yeah, I'll do 50 bucks this month and send me a pledge reminder in three months, I'll do another 50 bucks, right? I know that's more of a campaign opportunity, but we have people who pledged over the course of 10 months because they wanted to give us a little bit more, because they wanted to be a part of a, a gift club or whatever. But asking for the order, ask for a specific amount. It's important to tell them how to be transparent. With every annual fund, be transparent. How are you going to use the funds? Right now, if it's just for general operations, make it sound a little sexier than that. Tell them how it's going to benefit the kids. How is it going to make your curriculum better? How are you going to be able to upgrade? This year, we put in the budget that we need to buy Google Chromebooks for the third, fourth, and fifth grade classes. Okay, put that in there. That's in our budget. And if you give to this appeal, the third, fourth, and fifth graders are going to benefit this year. It's okay to put that, all right? 
Even though, yes, it goes for general operations, but that's part of our general operations budget. So highlighting things is important. It's also important in the letter, thank them for their generosity. Always thank them. How many times are you supposed to thank a donor from one gift to the next? Anybody know? Seven times. It's a lot. Seven times. So when I segment my database, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I always thank my previous donors. Thank you for your previous generosity to St. Anne's School. Thanks to your generosity, we were able to do X, Y, and Z last year. This year, we're going to boom, 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 and, and you move forward. I get that letter. I know you know who I am. That's so important to a donor. They know who I am. They know that I gave because there it is in the letter, thanking me for my generosity for last year. So thank them, thank them, thank them. And every letter that I write, thank you again for your generosity. It's very important. And obviously, it's sincere. Segmenting your appeal, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I would send 17 different letter types in the Bishop's Annual Appeal. Now, I didn't get there overnight. I dealt with five counties, and I know that what mattered to one parish in one county didn't necessarily matter to another parish in another county, right? So it needed to be specific when you're dealing with a geographic area. But you're all dealing with alumni. You're dealing with parents. You're dealing with friends. So maybe it's the same letter, but the first couple sentences are just a little bit different. As a former parent of a St. Anne's School student, I know you understand the value of Catholic education because you benefited from that from your own family. Just a simple sentence like that says to the donor right away, he knows who I, they know who I am. They remember me. And then I'm open to hearing and reading the rest of that letter. So again, we'll be online, this little sample letter, but just wanted to highlight a few things that I thought were, were important. This is a little bit stuffy language. It's okay. The first paragraph just talks about the history. But again, sometimes it can be important to remind them, we have a long history as a school of serving the community. Since 1954, the parishioners of St. Mary in Green Bay recognized the need to incorporate their faith into their children's educational experience. Since that beginning, over 10,000 students have received a Catholic school education at St. Mary's. Today, our faculty and staff serve over 300 students in two counties. What I was trying to do there is remind them we've been here a long time and we've served over 10,000 students. That's a success story. In the world of Catholic schools, we know that there are schools that are struggling. And you want your donors to feel confident that you're not only here now, you're going to be here in the future. Oh, by the way, we've been here for a long time. So reminding them of your legacy is important. And also telling them how many kids are in that school now. It's just important to let them know. I think it's not, especially if it's a success. If it isn't a success and you're struggling, maybe it isn't important to put the letter. But if it's a nice, strong number, it's okay to say, hey, our enrollment's strong. We've been here a long time. That's the statement we're trying to make here. One of our greatest needs of our families is tuition assistance. So in this letter, I decided I'm going to highlight tuition assistance as one of the needs. Last year, we received requests of over $25,450. I'm sizing for them. That may be really low for some of you. Some of you guys may receive a half a million dollars in requests, especially some of the high schools. But we received over $25,000 in tuition assistance requests. St. Mary's is grateful to have awarded over $10,000 to families who would otherwise be unable to access this education. What did I do there? I'm demonstrating the gap. We had $25,000 in requests. We were only able to satisfy $10,000 worth of it. Now I can see as a donor, oh, wow. Well, what happened to the families who asked for the other 15000 Were they able to go? Now I'm starting to build my case, and I'm sensing a need. Now I want to bring it home and make it a little bit more personal. Mary Jo, a mother of one of our students, said, when my husband lost his job last year, St. Mary's School was able to help our two children remain in their class. We are so grateful to the families who support the annual fund. Again, not a big story. One of the families was touched. They were helped by my generosity. Today, we ask you to consider a gift to our annual fund. 
Your donation will go towards tuition assistance, technology upgrades, and excellent academic resources for our students. Please consider a gift of $25 to the mission of our school. Your generosity will make a tremendous impact on the lives of our students. So I asked for the order. I asked for a specific amount of money. At every celebration of the Holy Eucharist, we remember our family, parishioners, friends, and alumni, and thank God for your generosity and support. I ask you today to prayerfully consider our request, the students of St. Mary Regional Elementary School. Sincerely yours in Christ, Mr. John Smith, the principal. One of the elements of this letter I think that it's important I want to point out is it's not a long letter. Okay, people don't read long letters. They, they read less and less. So we got to get in and we got to get out. We got to make our point. Every sentence in here has got to contribute towards the structure of the ask. It can't just be meaningless. It can't go on and on. I'm not going to read a really long letter. I may or may not, if I could say more about Mary Jo, and maybe I could have a little attachment that tells Mary Jo's stories or have some quotes from other families. Certainly, I would accompany some visuals of the kids that would bring home the message of the students. I want to get in and I want to get out of here really tactically, and that's so important. So, like I said at the beginning, guys, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's a lot of great annual fun letters, may or may not follow this specific format, but really be intentional about each of your paragraphs and try to make them, I don't want to say brief, but succinct and to the point. They may have a little more emotion than this one. This is not a real sappy emotional letter. This was obviously written by a guy, but it gets in and gets out and it makes the point and it makes the ask. Again, how we thank people is just as important as how we ask people. So a couple little points here. Process gifts as they arrive the same day if possible. If possible. I know it's not always possible. Don't let checks sit out or wind up in a drawer (laughs) or not get acknowledged or not get deposited. That does not help donor confidence if they see that their check arrived and sat in a drawer for two weeks. They can tell in their bank statement when, when you deposited it. So handle cash right away. It's also for security. Get it in the bank, right? We don't, we don't need checks and money laying around. My rule of thumb, deposit checks within 24 hours, or if you get them on a Friday, get them, get them in the bank by Monday. And then within a few days, you should be sending out that thank you. Capture donor's name. So this is an opportunity. Again, when you get that check, are you taking, taking the opportunity to double check the addresses? Your database person hopefully is doing that. Record all gifts, no matter how small, into the database. Some might people say, oh, it's 25 bucks. Put it in the database. You should be recording everything. Capture everything that comes in. And every gift that is received by your school should be acknowledged with a thank you letter. Every gift. And obviously, there's language in there for tax reasons that you should put in there. But every gift should be acknowledged. Now, if you're getting 1,000 gifts... Maybe you don't need to personally hand sign each thank you, but maybe you do. Maybe that's time well spent. Some people I have seen, some some advancement directors and heads of schools, gifts over a certain amount, we acknowledge with a phone call and a letter. They get a call from the head of school. Thank you for your gift. We just got it. $500 today. That is so wonderful. We're so grateful. That makes an impact on a donor. So acknowledging the gifts. I say send a personalized letter for all gifts received, signed by the head of school or the pastor. I think is important. Advancement director is great. Maybe they co-sign it, but it's nice if they're thanked by the head of the organization. So if there's an opportunity, pastor wants to get involved, but the head of school personally signing, I, I would do that. Absolutely. It's, it's a good time. Sometimes you put a little note, a little personalized note with the thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Jo. Great seeing you at the picnic last month. Come by for coffee sometime soon. I know that takes time, but boy, people really appreciate it when they say you took the time to write a little note on there. Thank you. That really personalized it. So speed, get the money in the bank, get a thank you out within a week, if you can, within a week, it's really important. 
if it takes an organization a month or two months or three months to send me a thank you, I don't know that my gift really mattered that much. And that's what they think. Or what's going on down there? It took them three months to send me a thank you? Seriously, out of high school, it took them three months to send a thank you. That's just, that's not, not a good practice. So think about that. And then think about the language and who signs it. Personalize that experience for them. Now here's some things that I've noticed that make donors angry. Mailing to their dead relatives. <laughs> it's true. Now, if the, if the relatives respond, you might have an issue there. But sending them multiple copies of the same mailing, right? Maybe you have duplicate records. So make sure you're deduping. Never sending them a thank you letter or waiting three months to send it. That makes them upset. They got to call you for a thank you? Hmm. Misspelling their names makes them angry. And mailing them somebody else's letter. <laughs> Especially if you're personalizing your asks. Ah, right? Okay, so just a few little things that I've, uh, I've noticed. I want to thank Lori Paul, Janet Wagner, and the schools of the Diocese of Green Bay for inviting me to participate in this workshop. Just a reminder that I've included links to this presentation in the show notes and on our website. We'll play part two of the annual fund advanced tactics training very soon. Well, that's our show this week. Special thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for helping to produce our show. If you'd like more information about our podcast, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. So one way for you to show your love for our show is to leave us a rating on iTunes or by liking or reposting our show on social media. Many of you already do this, and I am so grateful that you show us that love and support. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Have a great week, everybody. Take care and God bless you and your family.